0: The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. So we're looking here at the crucifixion and what the Gospels, there's four Gospel accounts, Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and each one is often described as basically uh, an extended prologue for the crucifixion. Do you have... Uh, in the Gospel of Mark, you basically have eight chapters on the life of Jesus and then eight chapters on the crucifixion. And in the Gospel of Luke, you basically have everything leading up to Zacchaeus as kind of like the prologue leading you up into this final week of Jesus' life. And then basically after Zacchaeus, you have the, the showdown between Jesus and the Pharisees in the last week of his life. And then here in Luke 23, we slow reel down into... Um, the last moments of Jesus' life. So the Gospels are typically described as extended prologues on the crucifixion, and we are now arriving at the center point of the Gospel of Luke. We are now looking at what this Gospel has been leading us up to. And just as a reminder, I think that it is fascinating, as we have been looking through all of these interactions between Jesus and individuals, just who exactly we have been looking at. We have been looking at men who have been... um, freed from demonic possession. We've been looking at people who have been healed of leprosy. We actually saw two stories of people healed of leprosy or conditions that nobody but God could change. We have been looking at uh, disciples being called, prostitutes being freed and forgiven. We've been looking at a woman who was freed from an affliction for 16 years and that she has now been healed from. Little girls raised suddenly from the dead We have been seeing not only little girls raised from the dead, but a a widow's son raised from the dead. We have seen rich young rulers who had personal interactions with Jesus, who missed it. And then we've seen poor people and blind people engage with Jesus who totally got it. And we have just finished looking at Zacchaeus. We've been looking at all these individuals who have been having these personal encounters with Jesus. And we were arriving here at the crucifixion with all of them in mind seeing how Jesus has personally interacted with each person's brokenness and weakness, and seeing in them how Jesus cares about our sin and weakness and how he personally engages and identifies with each of us. And so we have all of these people, this, this crowd of people that we have been looking at kind of sitting around the amphitheater as we are walking into the center main event. And you can imagine we just had the Olympic opening ceremonies last night. All these people are around the stage, and here we are walking up to the middle point in the, the beginning of the end of Jesus' life here in the Gospel of Luke. And so, leading up to, we're going to be picking up in verse 26 where the crucifixion is about to be happening, but you have, if you're familiar with the story, you have Jesus leading up to this being betrayed by Judas. You have Jesus being led through a mock trial where he was um, unjustly condemned. He was chosen to die over a convicted uh, seditioner, so somebody who was trying to actually overthrow the government. Jesus was cho- chosen to die in his place, and now we arrive here at the crucifixion, and I think what Luke has laid out for us is something like a symphony. So in a symphony you have four movements, and there are four parts all gathering around the central theme, and I think what we are seeing here is the unexpected death of Christ in our place is our only redemption. We see this as the main theme of what's going on. We see Jesus dying in our place. We see Jesus being led to the slaughter here. And yet, it's a bit more like a symphony where you have a movement that dwells on a theme. And you have the next movement that kind of develops it. And they finally all work together so that we are all led to the same point of seeing the glory of Christ on the cross together where he is surrounded by all these people, and yet he is unexpectedly crucified and killed. And we are all led to the question of why. And So I think the, the way in which we are led into this is that all through the gospel, Jesus has been, um, he has been powerful. He has been surprising. He has been mighty and strong. And he has healed people with miraculous power. He has taught miraculous things. And yet here we get to the end where you would expect that Jesus would just lay everybody waste on the ground, and yet the unexpected happens. The things that we do not expect to happen start to transpire. There is a bit of a sense of irony in each movement because as each section develops, as we're going to be looking at, things are happening that appeared on one level to be saying one thing, but irony is when... We use words that mean something different. And it's actually sort of the, the symphony that we're going to be looking at of Jesus' crucifixion is words that say one thing, but they point to a different, deeper, and more profound reality. Kind of as an image of this that I, Michelle and I were thinking of is how in the Toy Story, everybody knows that Buzz Lightyear is a toy, except for Buzz Lightyear. He does not know that he is a toy. And that he is convinced of what he is truly a spaceman, right? <laughs> Space Ranger. And you have this moment in Toy Story where he's stands up on the guardrail. I can believe I can fly. And he stands up to jump, and we all know what's about to happen. Here in the gospel, we know at a distance, we as the audience know what is about to happen. And yet the symphony inside the story uses words to draw us to the irony that is pointing to deeper, more profound realities of who Jesus is, deeper realities of the cross and what it means for us. And so, if you would join me, I think we're going to begin looking at the crucifixion. We're going to be looking at who is Christ and how he has unexpectedly died in our place, for our for, died in our place as our redemption. We're going to be picking up in verse 26, the first <coughs> movement of the symphony, first we're just going to call the ironic crowd. We're going to pick up in verse 26. We're going to go through verse 32. The ironic crowd. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And they followed him, and there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourself and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the parents and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and the mountains and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry see, so here we have jesus being led out of jerusalem they have just had this mock trial and it has been widely popular and people have uh, flocked to it just like any celebrity that has a major fall everybody wants to see what's going down they want to see what's going on they want to see the news they want to get the the breaking news story they don't want to watch for the news reel. They want to see it live. And so here, everybody has flocked to see Jesus mock trial. He has been condemned, and now he is being let out. And there they are following him. And while they're being let out, poor Simon gets <coughs> lumped into things. He was probably known to the early church because he's called out by name. Here he is, just a guy from the countryside, a farmer, visiting town, gets lumped in. He must now carry Christ's cross behind him and this great multitude is being led behind jesus walking him out of the town and here we have these women who are mourning and lamenting jesus execution so what's going on what's going on with these women why are they mourning i mean it was traditional at that time for people to mourn the death of somebody but nobody if you'll notice nobody is kind of objecting nobody is saying oh you know what we hey guys maybe this is a it's a bad idea Nobody is objecting, nobody is saying this is a bad idea, and even these women who are lamenting, they are, you might say, soft opposers of Christ. There are the hard opposers who have done the mock trial and condemned him to death, and then there's these soft opposers who are mourning, they're not objecting, they're mourning Jesus' coming death. They have rejected Jesus either in intentional ways or in soft ways, but they are all leading Jesus out to his cross to get rid of Jesus, to be done with him, that they no longer want him among them. And yet Jesus has this really strange response to them. Basically says, why are you mourning for me? You should be mourning for yourselves because if it's bad for me, it's going to be worse for you. Like, what? It seems a bit of an odd, odd response, but I think what Jesus is picking up on and what he's telling them is that if Jesus, who is innocent, is being treated and being rejected like this, the nation of Israel will one day, when it is when they are no longer convenient for the Romans, will be similarly executed and similarly driven into absolute despair, which is ultimately true. 70 AD, the, the Roman siege of Jerusalem, it was horrific. Literally, stones were being thrown down. People were dispersed all over the world. Jesus, what Jesus says here is true, but he is saying also in a sense, to reject Jesus is to reject God, and to reject Jesus is to receive judgment. They will be judged for rejecting Jesus. They, they, they do not get away with it. It's not kind of like something that you brush <laughs> under the cosmic rug. Jesus, to be rejected, is a severe punishment to be born. They will be punished for Jesus' rejection. Then we have alongside them. Not only are all these people here, but we have verse thirty-two: two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. So we have we have all these people who have stood at the the trial of Christ, where he was unjustly condemned. And then we have innocent bystanders who are being thrown into the mix to carry his cross behind him. And then you have these mourners who are all mourning Jesus, and Jesus warning them: listen. You shouldn't be mourning for me. This is God's plan for me. You should be mourning for yourself. And then we have, all of, we have these two thieves that are being kind of lumped in here. We have this huge mass of humanity. It is almost as though the whole of humanity is represented here. This huge mass of humanity following behind Jesus and ejecting him out of their midst. We have all the people that have stood by him, that have rejected him now, and have abandoned him. We have all of the people that have stood at his trial, they are all as though they were trying to bleach a stain out of their garments. They are trying to eject Jesus out of their, out from among them. None of the people whom Jesus has saved or has engaged with, none of the people that we've looked at and, and through the sermon series, none of them are stepping up to the plate for Jesus. I mean, none of them are stepping in to, to stop what's happening. None of them are stepping in to, to object. I mean, even Peter, even Peter, who had high hopes of being the one who would stop his Savior from being led to the slaughter, Peter's nowhere to be seen. He's not even mentioned. here. Nobody is stopping this. They are rejecting Jesus like a stain to be, be rubbed out. And yeah, I think I, th- I think what we are supposed to see here is that this is God's intentional design. This is God's intentional design because these are all the very people that Jesus will ultimately save, but none of them had any hand in bringing about their salvation. None of them, none of them could help. These are the very people that Jesus would ultimately save, but none of them could help. None of them wanted to help. We are all, I think supposed to see ourselves not in Jesus here, but we are supposed to see ourselves in the crowd that is ejecting Jesus. We are all here among the people. None of us would really object to Jesus. We are all deeply offended by Jesus' claim of pure lordship over us, and we would ultimately be cheering them on, cheering Jesus on to the cross, not because we think that it's gonna be a great accomplishment, but because we're ready to be done with him. We are all here walking Jesus out, walking him to the hill, we are all, like Peter, have high hopes of being, uh, have, following our own self-help books and fixing our problems, but none of us can change ourselves. We are all, in this first crowd, walking Jesus out to the cross. We are all, like them, eager to reject Jesus. That's where we're all born. That's where we all want to be. And apart from Jesus' saving work in our lives, that's where we all stay. But the hope, the hope here is that Jesus knows that. He knows that these people that are crucifying him are the very people that he is going to the cross to save. These are the people that he is going to save. Like it, it, It's not like Jesus saying, oh, I'm going to go, these people will lead me to the cross, and then I'm going to go save some other people. No, the very people that are in the crowd cheering on the crucifixion of Christ, us in the crowd crucifying Christ himself, we are the ones that Jesus looks on and says, I'm... I'm going there, but I'm going there for you. I'm going there that this crowd, that us around him, that he would save us. The irony, of course, is that this crowd that is gathered around him to witness to his death and demise is actually the very crowd that Jesus will gladly and joyfully welcome into his church, to be his very people. Because if you're not in this crowd, then Jesus does not want you. Jesus comes to save the sinful and broken and weak. Those are the only people that Jesus welcomes into his family. But it happens to be that the sinful, broken, and weak people are the ones that crucify Christ. And yet the irony is that this great crowd will be turned into his great church. I think our hope here is that if you feel like you are too sinful, that you are too broken, that surely, even though you have trust in Christ, somebody who struggles with sin as much as you would never really actually be a Christian. If you feel overcome by your weakness and sin and brokenness, does Jesus love you? Jesus loved these people, and he loves you at your darkest hour, at your most sinful expression, at the most twisted part of your heart because He didn't need your help to go to the cross. He didn't need you to hold your to hold His hand or to give Him a pep talk to go to the cross. When you, when you would have wanted Christ to go to the cross, when you would have wanted Christ to die, not to save you, but to be done with, that's when He chose to go to the cross. Without your help, in your weakness, He, will, he went to the cross because He He wanted to take on the judgment that you deserve so that your weakness and sin could be forgiven and overcome by the power of God. But, as we're seeing here in Jesus' warning to these women, if you reject him, there is judgment still to come because the judgment that he is walking towards is to take judgment away for those who trust in him. But if you do not trust in him, that judgment will come. And so as we're looking at the symphony of Christ and the, and the passion of his cross, his love for you and dying in our place, we are seeing here this first movement, the irony of the crowd, the ironic crowd, because here is these people that are rejecting him. And yet by their rejection, Jesus is put on the cross where he intended to go that he might gather those people in to be his people. To be his church, to be King's Cross here, to be the churches around the gather. This is where the crowd has turned into the church. So we're going to move now. Pick up verse 33. The ironic mockery. We've gone now through through movement one of our symphony. We're not going to go to movement two. The the scope of the people that we are talking about is going to slowly begin to narrow through these passages. Verse 33. And when, he, and when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on the left, and Jesus said, Father, Father, forgive them, for they do not know, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots the to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching, and the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, it's his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, "If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself." There is also an inscription over him, "This is the King of the Jews." So here we have here we have the crucifixion, where Christ is nailed on the cross. and if you are familiar with the crucifixion, it is one of the more horrifying ways to be crucified, one of the more horrifying ways to die in human existence. I mean, the the, the the medical aspects of the cross are pretty simple. Basically, um, nails were driven through hands and wrists, the, the primary nerves of the body, were driven right through those so that the pain was excruciating. Uh, Jesus, at this point, would have also been scourged, so that means that his back would have been ripped open with, the, with lashes, and so here he is, having been led to this point, his back is all ripped open, he is now Totally exhausted and probably dehydrated because he probably hasn't had anything to, to drink in the last 24 hours or more. He's totally dehydrated, so incredible headache beyond measure. Being laid down on a cross that I imagine was not smooth and varnished so that it would have been scraping up and down his back. And then the, the point of the crucifixion is actually not to bleed to death, but you actually suffocate to death because you are hanging down, your chest cavity is, is pulled tight so that you have to press against your the, the nails and your feet to be able to stand up and breathe. I don't cover that to give all the gruesome details. You can listen to other medical experts on that. Actually, I think that the point of the text is not to draw our attention to those things. The cross of Christ actually, in some ways, was, it was a common, the horrific death. The cross of Christ where he died, he was not the first nor the last to be killed by this means of death. I, I think what is unique here is that Jesus chose to go to redeem us by his death by this mode of execution. And I I find that this one of the things I had a co-worker of mine once. Um, he came up to me at work, he said, Hey, you know, I watched the Passion of the Christ last night. You know, really would you think of that? Like, yeah, it just it really it just it was really like, I wasn't even half the picture, because I think that the point of this passage is not to draw us into the horrifying details of how Jesus died. I mean, Paul, uh, Luke just literally says, "There they crucified." But the point is to draw us into the spiritual dynamics. Why is Christ here? Why did He choose this death? Why did He walk up this hill? Why did He allow Himself to be nailed to this tree and die this death? Why? What is spiritually going on in this picture that draws Jesus to say, this is how I will die for my people? What is it about the spiritual dynamics going on here? Because again, the, the, the crucifixion, in terms of the mechanics of it, horrific, common. But what Jesus chooses to do here, that is the unique part of the story. That is the unique part of Jesus' crucifixion. That is what is different about Jesus' crucifixion. And to give us an answer to that, we have in the background of this passage Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is one of the more famous passages, more famous psalms in the Psalter, and it is standing. It is actually quoted here, and it is quoted in every crucifixion narrative. It is, cru- it is quoted either on Jesus' lips, where he quotes the first line, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" Or, as we will, as we're going to see, it informs how this, these people are even seen here. So. What is Psalm 22? I'm not going to read the full psalm for you, you, but Psalm 22 is probably written towards the end of King David's life where he is uh, cornered, he is being oppressed, and he is crying out to God for help. King David in Psalm 22 is calling out to God as his father for help in his darkest hour. Does that sound familiar? That's what's going on here in Jesus' final hour. He has been cornered, it seems that he, his enemies had won. And in Psalm 22, David writes the psalm in such a way that he talks about his mother, but he doesn't talk about his father. So clearly he's pointing to God as his father. The king is in, his, in the corner. He is in his darkest hour. Where is God? God, where are you? Are you going to help me? My enemies are about to destroy me. So let's just pick up. I just want to read a few verses of Psalm 22 because I think you'll hear Jesus' crucifixion as we read this. I'm going to read the first eight verses, and then I'm going to read a few from the middle. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by all the people. All who seek me, all who see me, mock me. And they make their mouths at me and wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him do it. And him rescue him for he delights in him Oops. and then verse picking of verse 16 for dogs encompass me a companion of evildoers encircles me they have pierced my hands and my feet I count all my bones they stare and gloat over me they divide my garments among them and from my clothing for my clothing they cast lots See, what's going on in in Psalm 22 is that David is cornered. He is at his wit's end, he is at his darkest hour, and he is crying out, God, my father, you are the one who's supposed to protect and save, and in this darkest hour, where are you? They, my enemies, are about to overcome me. I am virtually naked, they are bartering away my clothes, they mock me, and they are putting your name to shame. And so then we pick up here in the crucifixion of Christ. Verse 35, and the people stood by watching. That's, that's literally, that's a quotation from Psalm 22. And the rulers scoffed at him. Again, a quotation from Psalm 22. He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And then just before the end of verse 34, and the soldiers that cast light, lots to divide his garments." See so here, the way we read the Psalms, and the way we read Old Testament prophecy is not so much, yes, there is a literal fulfilling, but there is a picture of what's going on in David's life at the end. He is cornered. God, where are you? My enemies are about to overcome me. There is an image there that Jesus comes in and he fulfills more fully than King David could have ever because King David was guilty but Jesus is totally innocent. Nobody has anything on Jesus. People had things on King David. I'll give you a list of a few people who did. People had things on King David. Nobody had anything truly condemning to say about Jesus. He was totally innocent, totally pure, and yet here he is, pinned down. If you can imagine the image here, that, you know, Psalm 22 talks about hands and feet being held down. I think it's more of an image of a tiger holding down his prey by his hand and his feet. It, it, it is totally pegged down. Here is Christ, quite literally, literally pegged down on a tree at the end of his ropes in his darkest hour. That is the image that is going on behind then when the soldiers pick up and say, you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Because the soldiers were thinking, if he's the king of the Jews, he's got power that he should be able to show right about now because who wants to die? Who wants to die the ignominy of being left alone, naked on a tree, Dying by suffocation of all things in front of the entire world. Here the entire world has gathered around and yet the, 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 the camera zooms in on the cross of Christ where we are seeing the mockery at him. He saved others. Can't he save himself? We've been seeing how Jesus has saved others. How Jesus saves us. And yet here he is being mocked in the darkest hour The son of God, he saved others. Can't he he save himself? Have you ever felt like everything is being taken away from you? Like somehow you woke up one day, and today was the day that the world just decided to fall apart. Everything is being taken away from you. I don't know why, it's not just kind of like a small, like I, I tripped over and stuck my toe. Everything, my relationships are falling apart, my family is breaking apart, I happen to lose my job, my dog died, everything is falling apart, and yet here, in Christ's final hours, things are quite literally falling apart, his body breaking down. All of his relationships are pulled away. Even. Even the title that he has as the king of the Jews is being used and thrown as slander against him. He's pegged down. He's at his, his wit's end. Everything is being pulled away from him. But Christ allowed them to take everything away from him so that in your weakness, you would know the power of God. Because here is Jesus losing everything out of love for you, his death by love, his, his love death for you, is that yes, he is losing everything. He is being mocked, and yet the irony, the irony of the mockery is that yes, he saved others, but he will not save himself so that he can truly save others. They mock him by saying, he saved others, can't he save himself? But the point, the irony, is that, yes, he can save himself. But if Jesus chose to save himself from the cross, none of us would be saved. It would be totally lost. None of us would be redeemed. None of us would be changed. None of us would be saved from the ignominy and curse and judgment of death. Nothing would change. But Jesus, he did want to save He wanted to save us. He wanted to save our neighbors. He wanted to save countless souls around the world. And so, he chose not to save himself. He chose not to strike back. And so, with that movement in mind, let us now begin to zoom our our camera in a little bit more. We have now looked at the irony of the crowd, the irony of the mockery, and now let's go to the ironic kingdom. Let's pick up in verse 39. One of the criminals, who is hanging, who is hanged, railed at him, or quite literally blasphemed him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we we indeed are, are justly, for we have received the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And Jesus... And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Because here's this man, one on his left, one on his right. So the camera is not zoomed in. We've gone from the whole horde of humanity to these people who were mocking him. Now we're now zooming in on three people. Maybe one of the more famous events in the crucifixion. That's why you tend to see three crosses and one with two inside. And this man, there's one man who's railing and blaspheming him. So the, the slander is now getting so loud around Jesus that it's beginning to spread. So this man who is dying the crucifixion is hearing the king of the Jews. And he's starting to turn on Jesus. Here is Jesus in his final hour One man on his left, one man on his right. Probably both of them started out slandering him because one of the other Gospels mentions that they both were slandering him. And yet, one has a change of heart. One repents. And one turns to look at Jesus. And I just, I don't know about you, but this seems such a strange, what is it that you see here? Here's Jesus dying on the cross. Here is Jesus literally bleeding to death, suffocating to death, and what is he seeing? I think what he sees by the, by the Holy Spirit, he is perceiving that though Jesus is dying, though Jesus is being put to death, yet he sees in Jesus the, tr- the truly innocent man. He sees that Jesus is innocent. And if he is innocent, and he is truly the Son of God, then he is going to show his power someday, somehow, in one way or another. I think that's what he's seeing. He sees, yes, Jesus is innocent, and I, Jesus, you will bring your kingdom. And Jesus, if your kingdom is a kingdom that cares about the weak and broken and sinful, just like me, Jesus, would you remember me? It's a simple it's a simple cry of faith that because he sees that though Jesus is outwardly dying, yet he is establishing a kingdom of God's pure power. And I think this is one of the more fascinating things here is verse forty-two, and he said, Jesus, remember me. This this is the only moment in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is personally addressed by name without a title, where he has just said, Jesus. On the cross, dying. Jesus, remember me. Jesus Remember, remember me. And to this man's meager squeak of faith, Jesus promises paradise. Because, in fact, he is, by the cross, turning the world upside down. And he is reversing this great death of curse and sin. And this man will be with Jesus that day. I'm not sure we want to get into what happened to Jesus between his death and resurrection, but the point is that that day, the moment of this man's death, where Jesus defeats Satan's sin and death in his death on the cross, he is weak, though weak and powerless in his death, he is ushered into the power and glory of heaven. This man, by his weak faith, is given eternity in spotless and guiltless life, do you do you ever worry about your weak faith? Do you ever worry? You're gonna make it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> God, you, you've lost faith, but it just seems like I'm so half-hearted and I I just struggle to believe you. I struggle to read your word and believe that it's your, your word to me? Like, God, help me to believe this is true. God, I just I want I want some help. Yeah, I think what we see here is that God, God blesses faith not because of how strong your faith is, because of who you're trusting in, because of the power of the object of your faith. If you have faith, you're, th- you're throwing your anchor into something to depend on that rather than yourself, and here this man is depending on Jesus. Jesus, though by all outward appearances, it seems like you've lost everything. Jesus, you've got it all. Jesus, I want you. Jesus, you got to help me. Jesus, remember me. And Jesus says, your faith gets you eternity and the rest of the universe changed into glory. Jesus gives him everything. Jesus gives you everything. He responds to weak and meager and helpless faith, which should be a help to you because we have all got weak and helpless and meager faith at every hour of the day, even at our highest high, even at the mountaintop experiences. We have meager faith, but Jesus loves be your faith. His kingdom is established not because of how strong he is, but because of how glorious and how by all appearances his kingdom was being destroyed. Though everything seemed to be stripped away and though his world seemed to be crumbling around him, yet in the cross, Jesus is establishing his kingdom. It is though you are watching a king walk up to his coronation throne. And here is Jesus walking up to his coronation throne where his kingdom will be established. And here at his side is his first courtier, his first consultant, his first subject that stands beside him and gives us all the example. Weak and meager faith is blessed in the kingdom of God. The irony of the kingdom of God is that it is not by strength of man, but it is by God's strength in the death of Christ. Though God's kingdom seems to be falling apart, the irony here is that the kingdom of God is being established in the death of Christ. And so, with this movement in mind, as we are seeing ourselves, not in the prime role, but we're seeing Jesus in the prime role, and seeing how he, even in his death, is giving grace to those around him. Let's turn out our fourth fourth movement of this whole symphony. Ironic glory. I'm going to pick up in verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now the centurion saw what had taken place. He praised God, saying, "Certainly this man was innocent." And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw it, saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. <clears throat> So even here, the death of Christ, we don't just get a witness from the people around him. Creation itself is groaning under his death. Creation itself is beginning to turn its face away from the death of Christ. The son's life failed. Creation, creation is shamed by the death of its creator. And yet, we see here again, Jesus is absolutely and totally innocent of in his death. He has done nothing wrong to deserve this. This is actually... The centurion's confession here in verse 47, certainly this man was innocent. This is the seventh time in the crucifixion narrative where Jesus is said to be innocent. Verse 4, verse 14, verse 15, Pilate Pilate testifies that Jesus is innocent. Herod does as well. The thief on the cross in verse 41 and verse 22 it is said as well. And here the centurion in verse 47, Jesus is said to be innocent seven times during his crucifixion and yet why did Jesus stay on the cross? Why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did he insist on going and staying, though innocent? He is absolutely innocent. And yet here he is. Why, why is Jesus on the cross? And I think his final words give us, give us the insight into why he is here. Father, verse 46, Father, into your hands I can make my speech. Because here we see that God the Son and God the Father planned this death of the Son so that all the sin that Jesus has engaged with, all the sin and weakness that we've seen in this book, all the sin and weakness that we see in our lives, all the sin that deserves God's judgment, Jesus and the Father planned from eternity past that he would walk up this hill and take our place. Jesus' unexpected death, this unexpected way of our redemption is our only hope. And it is this point that I want us just to dwell on. I, I, I want to, I don't usually use quotes in sermons, but I want to use this this quote from from a woman, John Johnny Erickson Tata, who is actually just brilliant on so many points, but here I think it just deserve an extended quote because I think we are drawn into the agony and ironic glory of Christ's death. She writes, The face that Moses had begged to see, was forbidden to see, was slapped bloody. The thorns that God had sent to curse the earth's rebellion now twisted around his brow, on your back with you. One raises a mallet to sink in the spike, but the soldier's heart must continue pumping as he readies the prisoner's wrist. Someone must sustain the soldier's life, minute by minute, for no man has this power on his own. Who supplies breath to his lungs? Who gives energy to his cells? Who holds his molecules together? Only in the sun do all things hold together. The victim wills that the soldier lives on. He grants the warrior's continued existence. The man swings. As the man swings, the son recalls how he and the father first designed the medial nerve in the human forearm, the sensations he would be capable of. The design proves flawless. The nerve performs exquisitely. Up you go. They lift the cross. God is on display in his underwear can scarcely breathe, but these pains are mere warm-up to his other and growing dread. He begins to feel a foreign sensation, somewhere during this day an unearthly foul odor began to waft, not around his nose, but his heart. He feels dirty, human wickedness starts to crawl upon his spotless being. A living excrement from our souls. The apple of his father's eye turned brown with rot. His father. He must face his father like this. From heaven the father now rush rouses himself like a, like a riot, lion disturbed, shakes his mane and roars against a shriveling remnant of, of man hanging on a cross. Never has a father, has a son seen the father look at him so never felt even the least of his hot breath, but the roar shakes the unseen world and darkens the visible sky. The sun now does not recognize those eyes. Son of man, why have you behaved so? You have cheated, lusted, stolen, gossiped, murdered and envied, hated, lied. You have cursed, robbed, overspent, overeaten, fornicated, disobeyed embezzled and blasphemed. Oh, the duties you have shirked, the children you have abandoned, who has ever so ignored the poor or so played the coward or so belittled my name? Have you ever held your razor tongue? What a self-righteous, pitiful drunk you who molested young boys, peddled killer drugs, traveled in cliques, and mocked your parents, who gave who gave you the boldness to rig elections, to ferment revolutions, to torture animals and worship demons? Does the list never end splitting families, raping virgins, acting smugly, playing the pimp, buying politicians, practicing extortion, filming pornography, accepting bribes? You have burned down buildings, perfected terrorist tactics, founded false religions, and traded in slaves, relishing each morsel, and bragging about it all. I hate, I loathe these things in you. Disgust. For everything about you consumes me. Can you not feel my wrath? Of course, the Son is innocent. He is blamelessness itself. The Father knows this, but the divine pair have an agreement, and the unthinkable must now take place. Jesus will be treated as a person responsible for every sin ever committed. The father watches as his heart's treasure, the mirror image of himself, sinks, drowning into raw liquid sin. Jehovah's stored rage against humankind for every century explodes in a single direction. Father, father, why have you forsaken me? But heaven stops its ears. The son stares up into the one who cannot, who will not reach down or reply the Trinity planned it. The Son endured it. The Spirit enabled him. The Father rejected the Son, who he loved. Jesus, the God-man from Nazareth, perished. The Father accepted His sacrifice for sin and was satisfied. The rescue was accomplished. And here Jesus says, Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. Redemption face to face. Redemption has now and the death of Christ in Your place, in my place, has now been accomplished in His death for all the grime and sin and horror of our hearts. He has stood in our place, stood in Your place so that all the things that would cause You shame and infinite regret. He has stood in the place of the judgment that you deserve so that you can stand under the smiling face of the Father. So that you can now be redeemed and freed and set apart to be holy and blameless. Jesus took on the absolute muck of our lives, the absolute horror of our hearts. Everything that you have said to your spouse or to your brother or sister, to your friends, I think of regrets that I have deep into the night that are still with me 20 years later. And yet Jesus stood in the place of all the horror that I have ever said or done, all the things that you have ever said or done that would cause God to look as he does at Jesus, to look at you. He looks at Jesus instead. He looks at Jesus and all the ways that we have offended God. This was the Father's plan. Jesus wasn't doing this to wrench redemption out of the Father's hands. Father, into your hands I give my spirit because now the plan is accomplished. Now all of these pages of the Old Testament, foretelling of redemption to come, foretelling of the King who will save, foretelling of the Lord who will change creation, and change our hearts, and the spirit that will now indwell us, now in this weak, almost offensive death, now it is accomplished, now we are freed, now we are forgiven, now when we hear these words, we hear forgiven, true, purchased redemption, pure, purchased redemption. Jesus is forsaken by the Father because of the Father's plan so that we, with Christ, by the Spirit, would be welcomed into, into the Father's house. Which is why I think, verse 44 or 45, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now, that which separated us from the God from God's presence, God himself comes in and rips it apart, and God steps out of the temple. We are not the ones stepping into the temple to get God's presence. God is the one by the death of Christ where he wrenches the temple's curtain apart. And now God steps out. And if you remember doing our Bible study in the Gospel of Luke, boy, does God step out because once he steps out, the Spirit comes and mission goes forward. And now the church plant in Manchester, New Hampshire happens. It all happens because Christ here dying in our place, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and having said this, he breathed his last. He died in our place, this unexpected death. We, I think, must always stand in awe of the cross because there will never be a moment where we have understood it completely or fully or sufficiently or to its end. We will always be focused on the King on his cross because it is on the cross where the King sits in glory and grace upon us, grace over us. It is the only way in which we get glory, and yet it was this ironic glory where he died in what seemed like a weak, meager death. Yet it is in that very, that very death, this unexpected death, that we are drawn into his presence to receive his smile, to know his goodness, because now... All of my sin, all of your sin, all of our sin, is canceled. And in another gospel, it talks about him saying, it is finished. There's nothing left, nothing left to prove, nothing left to do, but to receive and enjoy him. And to stand in awe of Jesus' unexpected death on our behalf, which is our redemption. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We ask that you would help us to stand in awe and to treasure Christ in this death on our behalf, that we would know you and love you we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission.